Thanks, Dawn, and uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany. I'm glad that you're here with us. If you're new to us today, uh, it's like you're airdropping into the middle of a movie because we're in a series that's very integrated about the spirit and soul and the body. And so uh, I'll try and bring you up to speed if you're new uh, so that we can all do this together. But we're in the soul section of our spirit, soul, body consideration and uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about that, really looking at a story in the Bible about how we're transformed. So let's take a minute, we'll pray, and then we'll get into this together. Father, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of gathering not only in your name, but within these walls to listen for your voice in order that we might be transformed. So we invite your spirit to be our teacher, and not just that we would hear this morning, Father, we ask as well that we'd hear and respond in order that we might be shaped and transformed. And we'll thank you for that and all the adventure that awaits as we follow you. Pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As many of you know, millennials are leaving the church at this kind of alarming pathological rate. Uh, there's predictions that the church won't even be around anymore in 60 years or something like that. And when you talk to millennials, one of the reasons that you discover millennials are leaving the church is uh, the church's failure to provide transformation. In other words, uh, people are saying, look, why would I go to church when everybody there looks just like me? Same addictions, same selfishness, same indulgences, same consumerism, blah, 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 blah. It's all the same. If it doesn't eventuate in any change, I'd rather stay home and watch football, even if the Seahawks aren't in the Super Bowl. And, and so, like, why, why participate if there's no transformation? It's a great question. And in fact, uh, transformation is the whole point of our life in Christ. And if we're not being transformed, it's a failure at the soul level. That's what I want you to see this morning. It's a failure at the soul level. Because watch this. In your spirit, spirit now, three concentric circles of your picture, spirit, soul, body, Paul's prayer is that we'd be transformed completely. In your spirit, already complete. Christ has been joined with your human spirit. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. You're a new creation. You have a new identity. Check, check, check. It's all a win, but here's the problem. You're new in Christ, but you have old patterns. If you look at the Corinthians for, as an example of this, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he, like it's all affirming in chapter 1. Hey, you're saved. You got spiritual gifts. You're awaiting the coming of Christ. Uh, you're, you're using your spiritual gifts. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Win, 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 win. Oh, by the way, you're drunk at the communion table. By the way, you're suing each other. And that thing, you know, where you're sleeping with your mother-in-law, not so wise. So, like, there's, all, there's this new identity, but it's, it has not eventuated in transformation. Why? Here's why. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this, you're still living out from the power of your psychike in Greek, from which we get the English word psychology, you're still living out from the power of your soul. In other words, your soul is running the show, you have this new identity, but it's not, it's not breaking out to transform your personality. And if it doesn't transform your personality, then in your body you won't represent Jesus. So like you're still stuck with the soul running the show. Now, how does the soul learn to run the show? Well, the soul learns to run the show, our mind, will, and emotions, by our life experiences. We're all shaped by life experiences. We do a thing uh, with some of our staff members here called a life map. I don't know if you've ever done this exercise, but if you took a, 
uh, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, you draw a line across the middle of it. You can go back and look at your life story, which by the way, your story is the most important story you should be looking at. And you can see things above the line. I was born, that's a win, right? For everybody, right? I was born, that's a good thing. And then, there's, then there are below the line experiences. My parents got divorced or my, one of them was an alcoholic. There was unemployment, our house was foreclosed, whatever it happens to be in your situation. There's below, and there's other above the line experiences. Little League All-Star, um, you know, graduated top of my class, got into college, got a job, got married, hopefully above the line getting married. Uh, but you get the picture, right? All these things shape us in pretty profound ways so that we develop patterns of getting on in the world. And all, not all those patterns are healthy. Now, uh, the guy we're looking at this morning is Judah, and I just want to give you a, an example of his life map. He has a lot of below-the-line experiences, right? So Judah in the Old Testament, and he's our consideration this morning, Judah, on the plus side, is part of God's chosen family, right? Like the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Judah's one, he's one of the tribes, and so, like, he's in the chosen family. What does that mean? He's, he's called to receive a blessing, and he's loved by God and chosen by God and blessed by God. To use New Testament language, he's quote-unquote saved, right? So like, okay, great, all good. Here's the problem. He doesn't behave in any way that fulfills his calling because his calling is to look like God, like the generosity and justice and wisdom and mercy of God, and he doesn't look like God. Why? Because he was shaped by bad choices and bad experiences. First bad experience, he grew up in a family of unabashed favoritism. Uh, his dad, Jacob, had four wives, which, meh, meh, that's a problem right there. <laughs> Warning, never turns out well, I don't think. Uh, and then, of the four wives, he only liked one of them. That's a whole other story we don't have time for this morning. But he only liked one of them. And the one that he liked had two sons, and Judah was not one of those sons. So there's two sons in this family, Joseph and Benjamin, who were favored sons. And they got all the good stuff. Best presents at Christmas. Though Christmas wasn't there, you get the point. <laughs> right? Like, they were just, they were favored. Uh, that's unhealthy in any family system, as many of you know. And then when these brothers, as these brothers grew up, they kind of developed uh, an ethic of revenge. They had some, some bitter, I think some bitterness in them, so that at one point, their sister, uh, Dinah, was raped in this town called Shechem. And uh, what the brothers did in response to the rape was not confrontation or forgiveness, but simply revenge. And the way that they extracted revenge was uh, this guy who raped Dinah then wanted to marry her, and the brothers were like this. Sure, you can marry her if, the whole, all, if all the men in the village get circumcised, you can marry her. So they're all like this, let's do it. And then we'll intermarry with them, and all their stuff will become ours. We'll kind of assimilate them into, into our tribe. All the guys get circumcised, and then it says uh, in Genesis 32, on the third day when they were in pain, uh, the brothers, the other 11 came, or the 12, all, all the brothers apparently, came in, and they killed, they killed them all. And then they stole all their stuff, stole the wives, stole the kids, stole the stuff, right? 
So that's violence and deception. Then, uh, in this environment of favoritism, uh, the favorite brother, Joseph, is out one day, and he's, he's one of the youngest, and he's managing all the other brothers, the older brothers, which doesn't play well in any family system either. But the youngest is out managing the oldest, so he drives up in his Ferrari wearing his Armani stuff, and they're all got, they've got Goodwill sweaters, you know, and they're bitter. So they're, they're like this, let's, let's kill him. So they strip him of his coat, throw him in a, in a hole in the desert, then they're eating lunch while he's dying in a hole, and these Egyptians come and they say, and then Judas says, hey, why kill him? Uh, we could make some money here, let's sell him as a slave. So they sell him as a slave, Joseph off to Egypt. That's brothers sold a slave. Again, below the line, in case you're wondering. Then, uh, so jo Joseph's down in Egypt. Then uh, Judah gets, gets married, has three sons. They grow up, and he marries off his oldest son to this woman named Tamar. And then his oldest son dies. So then he gives Tamar to the next son in line, which is the custom, beyond the scope of this sermon, but just roll with it. It's the custom. Gives it to her, uh, gives him to her, and he dies. So then Judah goes to Tamar, thinking that she's the black widow, and says, uh, look, let's wait on you marrying the next son, right? Uh, because he, he didn't want to give her away because he's afraid that his third son will die. She, years pass, she realized he's never going to let her marry him, and so she'll never bear children, and that's her longing and identity in the culture. So when she hears that Judah is, Judah's wife dies, and then when she hears that Judah is going to his village, uh, she dresses up like a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, She's wearing a veil. He doesn't know that it's her. He sleeps with her. He impregnates her. And then uh, when he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he says, burn her at the stake. Also below the line, right? Because he'd, he'd left his ID with her, and then she goes, oh, before you light the fire, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these things belong, and then when he sees his stuff, he realizes that um, he'd slept with her, and he lets her live, and then she has twins, and the twins are in the line of Christ, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? It's, an it's a, like, this is an amazing story. So, messed up family, and then there's a famine as well. So, leave that up there just for a second, but watch this. Uh, Love by God, checked. Call by God, check. Blessed by God, checked. Blessed to be a blessing, checked. Being a blessing, not yet checked, right? Spirit, fine. Soul, dysfunctional. So now, here's a question on the table this morning. How does the soul move from dysfunctional to functional so that it can then uh, govern our life in such a way that we, in our bodies, represent Jesus. How does that transformation happen? Glad you asked. That's the point this morning. And the way that we see this transformation is this. 
in life experiences, Judah is transformed. And so uh, three things we're going to see. You can send that away now. There's three, three things we're going to see. We're going to see that hunger motivates, that curiosity and con confession instigate transformation, and that in the end, Christ is revealed. Hunger motivates. So what you need to be transformed is hunger, curiosity, and confession, basically. Let's look at these things. We start with hunger. So Judah is messed up. Favoritism, jealousy, hatred, lust, greed, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, violence, deception, whole list of stuff, right? Uh, and the other brother's pretty bad too. Then what starts the process of transformation is in Genesis chapter 41, where we read this, there was a famine. There was a famine. So what sets God's transforming work in motion for Judah is not a Bible study, not a sermon, not a revival meeting, not a philosophical discussion about the difference between the soul and the body. We get plenty of teaching here. Yeah, I, I'm convinced you don't need more teaching. Most of us, what we need is the capacity to interpret our life experiences in a way and respond to our life experiences in a way that eventuated our transformation. Because we're not transformed by hearing stuff. We're transformed by what happens in our lives and how we respond to it. That's what we're going to see. And so, hunger is the instigator of transformation. I'm just going to say hunger is always a good motivator. A uh, little survey. Who in the room has ever woken up on a Monday, didn't want to go to work, and you went in anyway? Raise your hand. that ever happened to you? Yeah. Or Sunday, in my case. <laughs> Same thing. You don't want to go. How many then, follow up, question B, how many went in anyway? Not all of you. <laughs> you don't want to go. But, and then if you went in, why'd you go in? Here's why, hunger. Like, you're like this. Yeah, got to go in because I got to do my job so that I can have money in my account so that I can go to QFC and buy stuff or wherever you go so that I can feed my family. Hunger motivates. Read the book of Proverbs. First Thessalonians says the same thing. If you don't eat, excuse me, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, I realize there's a whole social thing there and systemic injustice. That's not the point of this text. This text is saying, don't be lazy, right? This text is saying, allow the reality you got to eat to motivate you to get off your butt and go to work. That's it. It's pretty simple. So if you're hungry, you're motivated. And, and so the thing that I want you to see here is... Hunger isn't, doesn't just have to be physical. For these brothers, it's a famine for food, but there's all kinds of hunger. Hunger for meaning, hunger for intimacy, hunger for a purpose for life other than putting food on the table, hunger for uh, freedom from a hidden addiction. In other words, there's a dissonance that I mentioned a couple weeks ago between who we are and who we could be. And we ought to be hungry to close that gap. Does that make sense? We, I mean, we ought to be hungry. If we've made peace with <clears throat> dysfunction, that's dysfunctional. So you want to be hungry to close the gap between who you are and who God has called you to be. And so, like, if you're aware of anger issues, fear issues, unforgiveness issues, insomnia issues, greed issues, financial fear of the future issues, then don't pretend you don't have issues. 
Don't hide from your issues. Bring them out into the light. You got to learn how to lean into your hunger because it's the hunger that God uses to establish your true identity and to transform your soul. It all begins with hunger. So if I said to you this morning, what are you hungry for? Hopefully part of your answer has to do with soul transformation because that's ultimately what you need. What are you hungry for? Oh, you know, a remodeled kitchen, wrong answer. What are you hungry for? Well, I really wish the Seahawks had made, who cares? What are you hungry for? Man, I want to live into my calling. I, I want real intimacy. I want to be part of a community. I, I want to serve the world with the gifts God has given me. And yet, I keep stumbling over whatever it is. Put it in there. My hidden addiction. My dysfunctional marriage. My, my, my financial insecurity. My inability to forgive my parents for that thing. Hunger is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Not just physical hunger for food. Hunger. When my dad died, uh, I got bitter toward God. I kind of walked away. The return was instigated by loneliness. Like in a real hunger for intimacy. And I wasn't finding intimacy anywhere. And then uh, at a retreat, I heard again somebody say, look, you're made for knowing God intimately. And I got down on my knees in the snow at Camp Sugar Pine, February 1976, and I prayed. And I said, God, I don't know what this means, but I'm lonely and I want to know you. I'm told that you can fill that intimacy void. That changed the trajectory of my whole life. But it started with hunger. And you're all, we're all hungry. We just don't all admit that we're hungry. Because, uh, you know, we put up a veil of, like, perfection. Or we think that our hunger can be uh, satisfied through wrong pursuits. So kind of lean into your hunger. What are you hungry for? That's first thing. Because the hunger motivates these guys. Second, curiosity and confession instigate transformation. So watch this. They're hungry for food because there's a famine. Meanwhile, what's going on? Down in Egypt, the brother that they sold into slavery named Joseph has gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations beyond the scope of today, but eventually he ends up um, in this position of power in Egypt, second in command. He, so he had predicted to the head guy, Pharaoh, he predicted there's going to be 14 years, seven years of abundance economically, seven years of famine. So during the abundant years, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to build storage containers for food and we're going to store up food so that when the famine comes, we'll have food to feed our nation. And he was so successful at what he did that not only was there food to feed the nation, but they had excess food. Other nations were going to buy food from Egypt. And who was in charge of distribution of food? Well, as God would have it, Joseph was in charge of the distribution of the food. So we pick up the story in Genesis, if you're following your Bible, we pick up the story in Genesis uh, uh, 42. Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, because there's seven years of famine now, like global, or at least in the Middle East. So uh, like the chosen land, the promised land, is without food. Jacob says to uh, the sons, 
10 of the 12 sons. One's gone, Joseph. The other isn't going to do this journey. He says, listen, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. So why are you staring at each other? Go down and buy some grain there that we may live and not die. So boom, hunger, and they're off on a little adventure, right? Like Frodo, only there's 10 of them, okay? So they go, everyone but Benjamin, because, because Jacob, if this is like uh, Benjamin and Joseph, you're in the front row, Jacob, and I'm Jacob, I'm not over my favoritism. I, like, I've lost you. I'm not going to lose you. So you're staying. The rest of you in the front row, go. Whatever happens to you, good luck. But I'm not losing him. So that's, that's the situation, right? So off go the brothers. This favoritism thing, still a looming problem. And they get down there, and they, they end up standing right in front of Joseph. They don't recognize him. It's been like 25 years. But he recognized, Joseph recognizes them, right? So uh, he says to them, where you come from? We come from Canaan to buy food. And then Joseph says, you're not going to buy food. You're spies. You come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, uh, verse 11 of Genesis 42, they said, we're all sons of one man. And then I've underlined this in my Bible and written beside it, Ha, 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 because, listen, we're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Ha, ha, ha. Honest. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. We're honest men. Well, of course, there was that time when we told all the men in the village to get circumcised, and then when they did, we killed all of them and stole their wives and children and livestock and stuff. And then there was that time that we beat up our brother and sold him as a slave and then lied to our dad about it so that dad would think he was dead. And our dad mourned for two weeks and we refused to comfort him because to comfort him would have been to confess that we actually didn't kill him at all. And then it was that time that Judah slept with his daughter-in-law and impregnated her and wanted to kill her. And now we're honest men, right? Amazing. Like these are the stories you don't hear about in your precious moments Bible. <laughs> but they're there. I'm kind of serious. The kids aren't in the room. Like, we sanitize these stories for the kids. And then, and then we start believing the sanitized version. Don't do that. Because the transformation is in the dirt, right? So, so we're honest men. Oh, no, you're spies. Listen, when they say we're honest men, that tells me they're not yet ready for transformation. Why? They don't yet see their sin. Because what does it say in 1 John 1.8? It says, look, if you say you have no sin, you're kidding yourself. Um, nobody in the room says you have no sin. We all understand theologically that we sin, but it's very generic, right? And if your sin is generic, it's not sin. Like if you don't own your stuff, if you don't see your stuff yet, then you're living in an illusion. We got to own our personal stuff. And we, I know that because of what happens next. But they're not yet ready for transformation. Why? Because our soul doesn't like to own its stuff. It just doesn't like to. It's in us. You go all the way to the book of Genesis, and you see that our soul doesn't like to own its stuff. Blaming is in our soul. Victim is in our soul. But the good news is what happens next. Um, Joseph takes one of the brothers, Simeon, out of the line, ties his hands, he says, you will not see this guy again unless 
you go home and bring your other brother with you. Then, after he says that, they say, we've been framed. I want to see a lawyer. Oh, wait. It doesn't say that. Verse 21, they said, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pled with us and we didn't listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. This is kind of a gigantic moment. Uh, when Simeon is held, hear me, when he's held, he's held because they're being unjustly accused of being spies. Our hearts long for justice, but this little passage is one of the most instructional in the whole Bible because they don't say, we've been framed, I demand to see a lawyer. They don't seem to hold on to this unjust accusation because instead of doing that and becoming bitter and playing the victim card, they choose a higher road, confession. Does that make sense? Like, I get it. Bad stuff happens to us. We're, it's an unjust world. But watch this. I can't control what happens to me, but I can control how I respond to what happens to me. And if I haven't responded to what happens to me in the right way, I need to own that. Even if what happened to me is unjust. Are you hearing me? What often clouds our vision and prevents confession is our bitterness over the injustice that's been meted out to our own soul. And we're like, yeah, you know, let me tell you my story. And then it's this long litany of victimization. Okay, how did you react? Is what Viktor Frankl and Jesus would ask. <laughs> and these brothers, I love this. When they're unjustly accused, they're like this. Oh, this is our wake-up call. We're guilty because we sold Joseph as a slave and watched our dad weep for two weeks and continue to lie about it and cover it up. The hardest people in the world to deal with are people who will never say I'm wrong. Because until you can do that, there's no transformation. So, we see in the Bible our propensity to run and hide from our own offenses and to run and hide from God and to blame. We see it in Genesis 3. You read the story of Adam and Eve. You see running and hiding. You see blaming. But the antidote to that is confession. Like own your stuff. Second, there's curiosity. It's very, very important here. So we're guilty and then they're leaving, and they've got grain now that they bought. But as they're leaving, on the way home, they stop, they get off their animals, they undo their backpack, they pour, they're going to pour out some grain to feed their animals. And they see the money that they had taken to buy the food. And there's money in the sack. So that now, not only are they unjustly accused of spies, but now they're framed for theft. And now they have, boy, if, if they... If they had reason to be mad before, now they have double reason. And instead, do you know what they say at that moment? When they see the money, this is what they say. What is God teaching us? Genesis 42, 28. In other words, they're open to the chastening hand of God. And this, is their, this becomes their wake-up call that's going to 
lead to their transformation. What is God, what, okay, so a bad thing has happened. What is God teaching you? So you got an automobile accident. What is God teaching you? So there's been infidelity in the relationship. What is God teaching you? So, so uh, uh, your parents, one is an alcoholic, and it's wrecked the family system. What is God teaching you? So there's sudden unemployment. What is God teaching you? So you're retiring. What is God teaching you? So there's cancer in the family. What is God teaching you? So your, so your spouse is having a meltdown over her job. What is God teaching you? Look, that's the question on the table. And if we're not asking that question, we're two steps away from any transformation. We'll never close the dissonance gap. Our soul will remain messed up. <laughs> so I love that they ask the question. And that, that sets the table for transformation that will happen then as we come to the end of the story. So they go home, and the beauty is they're not yet transformed, and the famine remains. So they go home, but they have to go back. So then Jacob says, here's all the brothers back in the front row again. Jacob says very casually, hey, go buy us a little food. We're out of food again. Judah, who sold this guy into slavery, Judah, he says, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin. Jacob, always been a deceiver, he's like this. Why didn't you lie and say you had no other brother? Judah says, because we don't lie. That's why. He asked. We told him. How, did we, how would we ever think he would say, bring the other brother? And then uh, Judah said, he said we can't come back without him. So if we're not taking him, we're not going. And then, and then Jacob, like he's, Jacob's cornered, right? They're all cornered. So what happens? Jacob says, okay, do this. Put, put the first money back in the sack, put a bribe in so they don't accuse you of theft, put more money in to buy more grain, go, and if I lose, and this is what he says, if I lose my other son, I lose my other son. Because what did he say to the brothers? He said, listen, it's in the text. He says, listen, I only have two sons. Can you imagine the pain for the rest of the family? I only have two sons. One's already gone. You want to lose my other son? How sick is that? And then Judah's like this. Okay, we're going. And Judah says, I will be responsible for Benjamin. So they go. And then... I mean, you can't write this. You can't make this up. They go down. Uh, they hand the guys the first money, and the guys say, whatever, God was good to you. It was a gift. And, by the way, uh, the master, they don't, still don't know it's Joseph, the master wants to dine with all of you. So they have a private dining. Joseph sees his only full brother, Benjamin, hugs him, weeps. Then they all get food. Now watch this. A, they're seated by birth order. Do, 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 do. That's weird. Then um, they all get a piece of food. They all get a serving. 
One schnitzel, one schnitzel, one schnitzel, one, 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 until they get to Benjamin, five pieces of schnitzel. Now, look, if you're Judah and you got these kind of bitterness issues, they've just been exponentially multiplied. What is it with this guy? Even in a foreign land, he's the favored son. This sucks, pardon me. So, favored son again. All right, they have a meal. They get their grain. They leave. This is where Disney ends the story, right? But thankfully, we don't live in a Disney world. We live in the real world because what happens? The cops come. They haul all the brothers aside and they say, uh, who stole the master's cup? And Judah, as spokesman, says, none of us. We told you we're honest people. We just came to buy the grain. We gave you the money. Da, 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 da. It's all good. Uh, in fact, so confident are we of our collective innocence that if you find the cup, all of us will stay as slaves. And then the police say, yeah, yeah, whatever. You won't all stay as slaves. Only the one in, in whose hand the cup is found. So then they dismount. And they each one, so dramatic, starts with the oldest. Innocent, 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 innocent. Come to Benjamin. By now they're all packing up. They know that this, these police are wrong. Benjamin opens his backpack. You could just see it as a movie. The cup rolling out of the backpack. Now, if the brothers are not, if the brother's soul has not been transformed, what do they do at that moment? Do you know? They're like this. Man, this is perfect. Like we had to sell uh, uh, Joseph as a slave. We got rid of Benjamin through his own stupidity. We'll just go home and tell dad that Benjamin's gone. And now there will be no favorite son. We're all equals. Finally, finally. God's teaching uh, Jacob something through this. We'd spiritualize it. And our soul would remain unchanged. Instead, when Benjamin, when the cup rolls out of Benjamin's backpack, you know what they do? They all tear their clothes to sign a mourning. Then they all go back, and then uh, uh, they all say to Joseph, "We're all going to stay as slaves." And then Joseph says, "No, no, 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 no! You're not all staying as slaves. Only the one in whose uh, uh, backpack the cup was found." So at that point. Judah steps forward. And I got to read this because this is, this is gigantic. <laughs> Judah approaches Joseph, not knowing he's Joseph, and says, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Don't be angry with me. You're equal to Pharaoh. You asked, you have a father or brother. We said, we have an old father and a little child of his, of his old age. His brother is dead. They think Joseph is dead, not realizing they're talking to him. So he alone, Benjamin, is left of his mother. His father loves him. You said to your servants, bring the lad down that I may set eyes on him. We said, the lad cannot leave his father. You said, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. So when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him those words. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. We said, we can't go. And then your father said... 
You know my wife bore me two sons. There it is again, that thing. You know my wife bore me two sons. One's been torn to pieces. If you take this one from me and harm befalls him, I will die in sorrow. Now therefore, says Judah to Joseph, now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with me, since his life is bound up with the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring the gray hair of my father down to the grave in sorrow. Therefore, please let me remain and let the lad go home. For how will I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that evil would overtake me. There's a soul transformed. Remember what Jesus said, John 13, 34, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you have a bomb-proof doctrinal statement and you can win any argument. Oh, no. The proof is not in your words, much less in mine. <laughs> Here's how people will know your disciple, if you love one another. Oh, by the way, John 15, 12, the greatest love, greater love has no man than this than that he lay down his life for a friend. So here's Judah looking like, like last slide, last slide. Behave like Jesus. <laughs> Above the line. Like, how did that happen? Oh, you know, he went to a Love Your Brother conference in Nashville. It was amazing. <laughs> Hillsong did stuff. Andy Stanley spoke. People were weeping and doing stuff and there was fair-grown coffee, like, wow. That's how we're transformed. We get psyched up. No, you don't. We hear stuff and it just blows away. You know how you're transformed? Put the lens on that can allow you through curiosity and confession to begin to interpret what God is trying to teach you in life. In, in traffic, in aging, in marriage, in parenting, in living, in dying, in celebrating, in suffering, in politics, in voting, in division, in loving your neighbors, in hospitality, in, in global citizenship, wake up. Because <laughs> that's how you're transformed. Our soul is transformed because it's hungry to be aligned with the deepest callings of our spirit, to be people of justice and mercy and hope and love. And what takes us there? Your life takes you there. Your story takes you there. And when you go there, you're feasting on Christ. And when you feast on Christ, you will be transformed. Don't you love that we sing this song, Lion of Judah? What is that even? I mean, that's crazy that we sing that song. Judah, look at all the below-the-line stuff. Doesn't matter. Because in the end, he's living into his calling. So can you. So can we. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Judah. So human, so fallible, so fallen, so called, so loved, so much like us. Our desire is to feast on you now at your table in order that we might receive from you the lens to interpret our story in order that our soul might be saved. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you hungry?
for meaning, intimacy, justice. You hungry? Good news. This is my body. It's broken for you. Come, participate. Well, don't come. We'll bring it to you. Are you thirsty for forgiveness? This is the cup, the blood shed. So that you can know no matter how much you've lived below the line, you're still loved. Let's celebrate together so that we can leave here with lenses, curiosity, confession, and be on this ongoing journey of transformation. If the servers would come, uh, we'll receive communion this morning. I invite you to take the bread as individuals, hold the cup, as the cup will signify our collective unity as the body of Christ. Let's worship together.